You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Our reading this afternoon comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 3, reading verses 1 to 6, and then from verses 14 to 17, and it's entitled Crossing the Jordan. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now continuing from verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down towards the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Heather. Uh, g'day, everybody. If you haven't met me, my name is Luke, uh, one of the pastors here. And today we continue our series in Joshua, looking at Joshua chapter 3 and 4. So they're almost there. God's people are almost at the promised land. Uh, the year is about 1400 BC. 600 years before this, God had made a covenant with a guy called Abraham, promising to give him a people, a land and great blessing. And these promises have driven and guided God's God's people over the centuries since then through all kinds of ups and downs and twists and turns. And it has led them to this moment where they are finally on the brink of the promised land, on the brink of receiving all of God's promises. They're a great nation They're about to step into the land, and this is a land that God has said he will give them uh, for blessing. This is a place flowing with milk and honey. There's only one problem. There's something in the way, the River Jordan. 
The River Jordan is a big river, particularly at this time of year. In verse 15, we're told that the the Jordan River would overflow its banks at the time of the harvest. That's where we are at this point. And so while the river would normally be just about 30 metres wide, it's it's as wide now as perhaps a mile and up to three metres deep. And somehow they have to get all of the people across, all the soldiers or the men or the women or the children, perhaps more than a million people, plus all of their cattle and all of their stuff. They can't just swim across, they can't build a bridge, they can't ford this river, how are they going to do it? Well, God has a plan. For three days, the people camp by the river and the suspense builds. Then finally, some instructions come. Verse 5, Joshua said to the people, consecrate consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. To consecrate means to set something apart and it's done in preparation. Normally it's done in preparation for some encounter with God. So God's people were consecrated before they received the Ten Commandments. And here they're going to be consecrated because God is going to show up. God is going to reveal himself to them. They're going to have an encounter with him and discover his power. God is going to do wonders. So the next day God beckons the people forwards to the river The priests go first, they go through the camp carrying the Ark of the Covenant and they go with this promise that as soon as their feet touch the water, the waters will be parted. And so it proves. Verse 15, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away and the other waters were completely cut off. And so the people are able to cross over. Verse 17, as the priest stood on the dry ground, all Israel passed by until all of the nation finished passing over the Jordan. It's a miracle. It's a dead set, supernatural, undeniable miracle. The waters of this wild, restless river are stopped. So they're heaped up and a path is made through the middle of them. God's people walk across the river on dry ground. It's extraordinary, but, but, but why did God do this? Why did God choose to do this? Why did he get his people to cross at this time when it was necessary that something spectacular would happen? Well, I think there's two reasons, really. It's a call to faith and then a call to remembrance. God wanted to show his people something glorious so that they would trust him and that they would remember his greatness. First of all, it's a call to faith. See, this whole passage is about God, his power and his care for his people. He wants them at every stage to look for him, to see who he is and to see his greatness. You see this, first of all, with the minimal instructions that he gives. Uh, as David Jackman suggests, this might be to so that they understand just how impossible this is in human terms. They, they're looking for a miracle. And it's the same thing with the ark. You'll see a picture of it there on the notes. This ark is the ark of the covenant. And it's a big part of this narrative. It's mentioned about 17 times. Uh, If you've watched Indiana Jones, you have some idea of what it looks like. It's a big wooden box, uh, about one and a half metres long, 75 centimetres wide and overlaid with gold inside and out. And the great significance of the ark is that it symbolises God's presence. Uh, It's not God himself. Uh, God is, doesn't have a physical form, but it's the special place where this omnipresent God chooses to dwell. And so inside the ark are kind of tokens of who he is and what he's done. 
So there's a jar of manna to point back to how God had provided for his people in the wilderness. There's the law that God gave to them so that they know that he's guiding them with his truth. And on top of the ark is what's called the mercy seat, where they are reminded of God's forgiveness when they sacrifice. All of this points to God and who he is and that he is there with them. And so the ark would always go with them on their travels. It would always lead the way. And now the ark goes first again. As God's people face this great challenge, this terrifying crossing over, they're pointed to God's presence. The priests carry the ark at the front of the people. God goes before them into the waters and makes a path for his people. My favourite bit is verse 5. Joshua says, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Uh, in the NIV, that's, that word is translated amazing things, literally things to be astounded at. As Robert Hubbard puts it, these are stunning feats that only God can do, deeds so incredible as to leave their witnesses gasping, saying, How did you do that, Lord? That's what God wants them to experience. He wants them to experience something that is explainable only by his greatness. So in the Bible, God is presented as the God who works wonders. And he wants his people to see this, but not just he's not just showing off. He wants to show them that this power he's using for them, that he wants to provide for them. He wields his power on their behalf. And this miracle of the waters would have a special resonance for his people. You, you, of course, you might remember that when God's people came up out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, uh, they came to the Red Sea, the same uh, ominous situation, and God parted the Red Sea. And now he's doing the same type of miracle for his people, for a new generation. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, that generation that saw that miracle fell away and they, they lost their faith. Now God is showing this new generation. He's doing the same miracle for them. He's offering them an opportunity to see his power. But to see it, they'll have to trust him. That's the condition, isn't it? Look at the instructions given to the priest. Verse 13, when the souls, <clears throat> when the souls of the feet of the priest bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, then the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. So God is saying, God is promising to part the waters, but only when the priests venture into them. So they have to get into the water before the waters are calmed. They have to show faith. They have to trust that God's power will be at work. If, if before they see the miracle, they have to believe that there will be a miracle. And I think this is why God is doing this miracle now. Uh, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the land that they're heading into is an enormous, it's a beautiful land, but it's an enormous land and it's very intimidating. There's 31 kings there. There's some mighty cities and great armies. And it would be easy for God's people to quake in fear, to doubt whether they can do this, whether they can step into and claim these promises that God has for them. And so God is almost setting up this moment as a kind of test. Will they step into the water? Will they trust that he will come through in this moment? And then beyond that, 
will they trust that he will fulfill his promises throughout the land? You see, if God can do this miracle and part the waters, then surely he can do everything else that he needs to do as well. As one writer puts it, if he can get you into the land, then he can surely give you the land. So here God is setting up this kind of test. He's, he's asking them to trust him and entrust to obey him. As Dale Ralph Davis puts it, the land is God's gift, but there is also this command to lay hold of that gift. They have to step into it. If they believe, they will follow. If they think God will stop the waters, then they'll enter into them. And I think there's a lot in this for us as well. I've been thinking a lot over the past month or so about how we should read Joshua, 3,500 years after it's written. Uh, I mean, are, are the promises that, that we read, are they, are they relevant for us? Can we just take them for ourselves? I think we have to be a little bit careful here. We, we don't have a literal promise of a River Jordan. Uh, I've tried to walk on water once before. It didn't go so well. You can ask about me. They ask that about me later. That, <laughs> there are principles here. There's principles here and themes that I think God is inviting us to think about. First, this idea of God's promise and our response. God offers grace but demands that we have the faith to receive those promises, to step into it. And then in particular, I'm struck by this idea of crossing over. The language of crossing over is used about 20 times in the chapter, so it's clear that God is drawing his attention, our attention to it. And for the Jews, it was a physical crossing over, but there was a spiritual sense in which they were crossing over as well. Uh, remember, God's people had been in this same position before, years before, and Numbers 13, they got to the edge of the promised land and then they freaked out. They turned back. We read in Numbers 14, they, they, they freak out about the situation they're in and then they, they say, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This seems crazy to us because we know if we've read our Bible that when they were in Egypt, they were slaves. It was a horrible life. Why would they want to go back to that? Well, perhaps it's because... That's what they knew, and they were afraid to step beyond that. So it feels like that previous generation had lacked faith, and now this next generation is coming forward to the same spot, and God is saying, will you trust me? Will you trust me to get you across the river and into the land? Will you trust me to give you the land? Maybe that seems obvious, like why wouldn't you do that? All they've known, all this generation has known, has been a life in the wilderness. It's a horrible place. In fact, there was an astronaut who walked on the moon who said, the only place I can think of that's as barren as the, as the moon is this place in Sinai that they're talking about here. And yet for all of that, it was familiar. Every day they'd received manna from heaven, bread from heaven. God had provided for them everywhere. He'd been with them. And so it would be easy for them to just think, I just want to stay with what's familiar. But God was pressing them to go beyond this. They had to show faith, to step into what was unknown. They had to cross over before they could receive God's promises. And I feel like there's times in our lives where we have these crossing over moments as well. 
situations where we have to move from the familiar and what feels secure into what is unknown, but God is leading us into that. And in the way are our fears and our doubts, these kinds of challenges that we face, and God doesn't just give us a bridge, he asks that we step forward in faith, trusting that he will open a way. I'm reminded of a book we used to read when our kids were little, when they were small, called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. And there's this great line that's repeated throughout. There's all of these obstacles that they come to and they say, we can't get over it, we can't go under it, we can't go around it, we have to go through it. And I think there are lots of moments like that in our lives where we have to go through it and trust that God will make a way. Perhaps the most important crossing over moment in the Christian life is actually the first one, the point of conversion, that moment where we cross over from death to life, from the old life to a new life living with God. You see, to be a Christian is to live with God as our Lord and to recognise his authority over our lives and to, to submit to his leading wherever we are, whatever we're doing. But we don't naturally do this. We naturally go after our own hearts and our own will, and we try to create our own path. And at the point of conversion, we have to turn back to God. As Christians, we call that repenting, where we are going one way and then we turn back another way, trusting God's authority and following him. We resolve to follow him and we say sorry for our sins. But there's something in that that requires faith. It's, it's not natural for us to just do this. See, deep within us, I think since Genesis 3 and the very fall of humanity, is this doubt about God. We lack faith in him because we, we imagine that he is controlling. We imagine that, yes, he might want to guide and direct our ways, but we feel like what he comes up with is not going to be good for us. It's not going to be enjoyable. He's a killjoy. And so we have to, before we uh, uh, choose to follow him, then we have to trust that he is worth following. It's almost like God is on the other side of the river saying, here is life with me. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came to give life and have it to the full. And over here, we're kind of in the wilderness. We have our sense of freedom and the familiar but actually it's not really the kind of life that will be fulfilling. And so we actually have to trust that God is good, that he is worth following, that his way is the best way. That, as the Psalm 16 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. But even if you've done that once in your life, you might find that you need to keep doing that. There's all of these other moments that come up in our lives where we have to cross over from doubt and our own independence to trust and following God and his will. You see, we often say Jesus is my Lord, but that's kind of a blanket statement. And then really it's tested in the specifics. See, when we become Christians, we have this, we recognise and acknowledge God's authority over all of our life, but then we see it played out in little things, lots of key decisions. Uh, where God presses something on us, a challenge, and really that becomes the moment where we decide, are we going to follow God or are we going to go our own way? 
And something I've noticed in ministry is that the people who have the deepest and most vibrant and joyful faith are the people who have chosen God in those moments. They've crossed over. Could have been anything. Could be any number of situations. Perhaps they had to give up a relationship that wasn't honouring to God. It was hard to do. But once they chose to do that, then their life opened up. Perhaps they had to give up some pleasure that they really enjoyed, but it was sinful. Or perhaps it wasn't something sinful at all, but something that had become uh, dislodged in the wrong way. So perhaps they, their career had become an idol for them and they had to give that up or to change that because it was taking them away from God. These were moments, key moments, where they had to make a choice. They said Jesus was their Lord, and this was the moment where that was tested. And when they've chosen God, the rest of their life opens up. Because if you're willing to say yes to God in this thing, then you'll be really willing to say yes to God in everything. God's Lordship is tested in the specifics. And in these moments, if we cross over, we follow him, then we'll find a life of promise with him. But these aren't just threatening moments and difficult moments. I think there's lots of positive opportunities where God invites us to step over, cross over, to discover his grace. In Ephesians 1, we're told that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And yet sometimes I wonder if we're really living in the truth of that. So often we're kind of held back, I think, by the ongoing sin in our lives or the discouragement and condemnation that the devil might send against us or just by our own love of mediocrity. It's actually just easier living a comfortable life. But God is saying there is all of these promises for you, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There are more, there is more of this that we could have if we pursue God. If we step over, cross over, and choose to follow Him more authentically. I've had many crossing over moments in ministry. At every stage of ministry, I've had these moments where I had to say, Do I trust that God is in this? Yeah, am I the right person for this role? Will people follow me? Is, is God calling me to this? And it's really been from the very start. You know, I remember leading a, a Bible study group for the very first time and I was terrified. I had to step out in faith. Is this the right thing for me to be doing? I remember mentoring someone uh, when I was in uni ministry and this guy was like, had so much potential and an incredibly gifted person. I was so worried that I'd stuff him up somehow. <laughs> that I was terrified to do this and I had to step out in faith. And it's always been this throughout ministry when we started this church. Was this the right thing? Was God calling us to this? Maybe there's something in your life right now where God is inviting you to step out in faith. It's a crossing over moment. Perhaps you're here and you're not yet a Christian and God is calling you to repent and to turn back to him. He's inviting you to step into the grace that he has. Or perhaps there's another area of your life and maybe you're thinking through your career or maybe you're thinking about ministry opportunities or maybe there's a relationship where God is inviting you to trust him. 
Now, I can't say that there is a clear promise of what's going to happen on the other side. 2 Corinthians 5 says, though, that we walk by faith and not by sight, that we have to step into the water to discover God's power and his grace. If we do that, we will find the God of the River Jordan, the God who makes a way. And when God comes through like this, it's important that we take stock and celebrate his grace. So we've had a call to faith, and now in Joshua chapter 4, we see a call to remember. Uh, Once the people had crossed over the river, God instructs Joshua to pick out 12 men, one from each tribe of the people of Israel, then get them to pick up a stone from the middle of the river and make a monument to God's grace. Uh, The stones, as one writer says, serve as both a sign and a memorial. It's a sign that it actually happened, and it's a memorial where they can look back at this thing and be taught by it, because that's the whole idea. Verse uh, verse 21, uh, Joshua says to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know that Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So so the idea is that they're going to set up this beautiful big uh, monument, or it's a simple monument, and they're always going to look at this, and for succeeding generations they're going to be able to remember what God has done. It'll be like a visual sermon, a, a cue to look back and to understand God's greatness and to reflect on it. Uh, I love the idea of this kind of monument like this. I mean, we see it a lot in the Old Testament. Whenever God did something, he would call his people to remember it, to, to make a memorial of it. So there were festivals that commemorated God's grace, like the Passover festival, where they would remember how God miraculously brought them up out of Egypt. And then they'd sing about God's goodness as well. Constantly, when you read the Psalms, you see that so many of the Psalms recount God's grace and his blessings for his people. And then there were physical symbols and monuments that were designed to help them remember specific moments. Uh, One of my favourite hymns is Come Thou Fount. Uh, It's a beautiful tune, beautiful lyrics, uh, except you might not understand all of what it says. In the second verse, there's this line, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy grace I've come. It's a cool line, but you might wonder, where on earth does this come from? Who's this Ebenezer dude? Well, it's actually from 1 Samuel chapter 7. In that passage, God's people are at a place called Mizpah, and the dreaded Philistines come up against them. They're, they're swarming and, and, and the, the people feel afraid. And so the prophet Samuel says, look, why don't we ask God to intervene and rescue us and give us the victory? God comes through and then Samuel says, let's celebrate what God has done. So he sets up this stone and he calls it Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer, you see, means stone of help. And it becomes this enduring symbol for his people. Every time they look at this stone, they're reminded that God is the God who helps them. They remember that particular battle and they're reminded of God's character. Might I suggest then that we should set up some Ebenezers in our lives, make monuments, memories 
of moments where God has come through, where we've seen God's power and his grace. Perhaps you could uh, start with some of those crossing over moments. Perhaps you, 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 you want to remember your baptism. You know, every time you go to Willie Beach, if you've got baptised there or Altona Beach where we do our baptisms, uh, you're reminded of that time where God uh, gave you that, you crossed over and celebrated your faith. Maybe you've got a, a necklace or something that someone gave you when you became a Christian. Uh, I've got a mentor whose office is just full of these little mementos of his ministry, places that he's been to and times where he's experienced and seen God's grace and he's reminded of these things. And we do this naturally, don't we? If we, if we go on a holiday, we take photos so that we can remember it or, or we grab a souvenir because that thing, when we look at it, takes us back to that place. It makes the past present for us in a fresh way, doesn't it? But it doesn't just have to be a thing. It could be a person. Uh, sometimes there are people in my life, every time I see them, I'm reminded of God's grace to me through them. It might be a place. Uh, there's places I, I think of where I, where I prayed and really experienced God's grace. And so if I return to those places, I'm reminded of those experiences, reminded of God's goodness, his character. And it can be collective as well. I was reading a story about a church in Oregon uh, that where you go to this church and they have this little monument of stones with a plaque on it with a quote from Joshua 4. Uh, this church had been growing rapidly and they needed to expand their building, their venue, and so they had to raise a quarter of a million dollars very quickly and they were able to do it. And so they put up this monument as a, a reminder for them of how God had come through that moment so that they would trust that he would continue to do that. Uh, the Christian life is a walk with God, as we sing in Amazing Grace, through many dangers, toils and snares. And so it's helpful to kind of set up some landmarks along the way to mark those key moments so that we can look back and be reminded of God's grace. Those things bring the past into the present and then they shape the future as well. So the more we are reminded of God's grace in the past, the more we'll be confident of his provision for the future. Uh, I knew someone who used to keep a prayer journal where he would write down his prayer requests and then periodically he would go through this prayer journal and tick how and, and sort of make a note of how God had answered those prayers. And he sort of update this and think, oh, wow, that one's been answered now too. How incredibly faith-building would that be? To go back and reflect on God's grace over the past, to build his confidence for the future. Dale Ralph Davis says that the greatest enemy of faith may be forgetfulness, but the opposite's true as well. Remembering God's goodness builds our confidence because it is incredibly easy for us to forget. So that's actually what happened with this monument. These stones were set up as a visual sermon for the next generation. The kids were supposed to look at them and see what God had done. But it seems like that didn't actually happen. Uh, the book after Joshua is a book called Judges, 
We're told at the start of Judges chapter 2, verse 7, that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who'd seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. They, they had seen God's greatness and they'd responded in faith. They had confidence. But then we told in verse 10 that that generation were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They hadn't experienced it for themselves. And perhaps they hadn't gone and visited the stones or when they saw the stones, their parents had forgotten what it meant. They hadn't passed on the knowledge. And so this, they had lost sight of God's grace. The memorial had been forgotten. In fact, this special place where they set up the monument, Gilgal, became a place where they worshipped other gods. And so the, the horrible irony is that this place that was supposed to build their faith in the true God became a place where they turned away from him. And so it shows us just how easy it is for God's people to forget God's greatness and his wonders for us. But thankfully, there's one memorial that never fades. A little earlier, I talked about the crossing over of conversion, that moment where we go from death to life, where we go from walking our own way to walking with God, and then it requires faith. We need to trust that God is worth following. But I felt a bit uncomfortable saying all that, and I hope you felt uncomfortable too, because I was totally focusing on us and on how we respond to God. And there is a definite sense in which we have to trust that God's way is worth following. But I don't want you to think that it's all about us, that it's all about our works, because that's not how it works at all. See, we do need to repent. But even when we choose to turn back to God, we can go about it the wrong way. We can imagine that we have to build the bridge to God to continue that analogy of the river. But, of course, it's God who has to make the way for us. He has to open a path, and he does that through Jesus. Jesus opens the path for us by dying for our sins and giving us his righteousness. And the ultimate step of faith is to trust that he will get us across the river. See, we can try to do it ourselves, but we have to step into the water and trust that Christ's righteousness is what saves us. And as we do that, as we're carried across by Christ, he gives us a memorial to remember it, to be reminded continually of his grace, of our sin and his forgiveness. And we call this memorial the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
when we take the Lord's Supper, God brings the past into the present for us. We're reminded of the reality of the crucifixion, that Jesus' body was broken because of our sin, for our sin. And Jesus' blood was shed so that we could be forgiven. We're reminded of that. We're confronted with the reality of Christ's death. But we're also offered a fresh experience of his grace. I love that it's a meal because God doesn't just want us to to think about this. He wants us to experience it, to consume his grace. I remember the very first time I took communion. At that point, my faith was quite intellectual. I thought about God a lot. But when I took the elements, I remember having this profound sense of feeling God's grace, consuming it, being reminded exactly of what Jesus had done. And don't get me wrong, we don't, Jesus doesn't come into the elements. We're not eating his physical body, and that's not happening. But what is happening is the spiritual meaning of his death is brought home to us in a fresh and beautiful way. And what's wonderful is that God gives us this meal to kind of give us this promise for the future. Uh, Often Christians, when they've read Joshua 4 and Joshua 3, they've taken this River Jordan moment uh, to symbolise death and the crossing over from the wilderness of this life to the promised land of heaven and a life with God. Take this him, for instance, on, rivers, on, jo- on River Jordan's banks I stand and cast a wishful eye upon the fair and happy land where my possessions lie. So this idea that beyond the grave is a life with God, a promised land. And you can see why we would sort of take that imagery up for us. And the, and the idea is that Jesus will help us cross the river. Another hymn, we're nearing that dark river, which we all must cross someday. But the faithful of the Father need not fear, for the Saviour there is waiting. He will safely take us over at the crossing over Jordan. He'll be there. There is this promise that God has for us and Jesus will take us across. It's a beautiful picture. And at the Lord's Supper, Jesus makes sure to remind us of this. See what Paul says. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 26, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. At the moment where Jesus gave the Lord's Supper to his people and he explained what it was all about, he pointed to this future meal where he would serve it to us with him in paradise. It's extraordinary. So we have the joy of having this meal and we remember the past. It's brought vividly into the present. But God also wants us to look at this and look towards the future, where he serves it to us on the other side. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.